What happens when you drink water, though, and the water level changes? Is that a real question, or am I just misunderstanding what you're saying? You're misunderstanding. You 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 have to pee back into the bottle. So you drink some, <laughs> and then you pee back into the bottle. So the bottle always stays at a certain weight. So anytime you drink, you have to pee in the bottle. So it's consistent. Hey, everyone. We're back for yet another episode of the Pink Bike Podcast. I'm Mike Levy, and today... In episode 98, 98, we're going to do a deep dive and do our six trail bikes from the fall field test series that's either just wrapped up or being close to wrapped up. I'm not entirely sure when this podcast is going to come out, but either way, we're going to talk about our six trail bikes from the field test. So if you listen to our downcountry bike debrief in episode 95, it's going to be just like that, but reversed this time around. Henry Quinney and I will be asking Mike Casimer and Alicia Leggett a bunch of tough questions, including some that I picked out from the comment sections under each review. So we're going to ask them some of your questions as well. But before we get into all that, let's talk about what the heck a field test is and why it's a lot different than our normal long-term bike reviews. Casimer, can you explain what a field test is and why we do them? Yeah. So field test is a great chance for us to do some back-to-back testing on these bikes. Uh, it's a little bit more condensed than our normal long-term reviews where those we have a bike for a, a month or two where this one ends up being a couple weeks of ride time on the bikes. Um, but the, the benefit is, like I said, that back-to-back testing. So you have them all in the same place. We set up some test loops. We do the same loops. We do some timed laps just to kind of get a, an idea of where they might stack up. And then along with the time testing on that timed lap, we just do some kind of regular rides, just rides the mix of terrain just to kind of see the differences between all the bikes. Kaz, how important is that back-to-back testing? Like we, you and I and Henry and Alicia, like we've all ridden a lot of bikes and we all know what's happening underneath us, but how important is it to ride these bikes back-to-back? What does that do for us? I think it just makes it easier for you to figure out the differences quickly. You know, if you're you know, at home when I'm testing a bike, I usually have one or two bikes on rotation. So I'll do some back to back, but not to the same level that occurs during a field test, you know, having six different bikes and, you know, some of the days I would ride, I think there was a day where I rode all six bikes on the same day. So that really is about as quick as you can go back to back to back to back to back. So I think that just helps you figure out the differences so much faster than you would if you're just riding one bike one day, one bike another day. Yeah. I mean, on one day I was doing the time testing and I rode each bike, how to put this twice. So I did 12 short test loops and, you know, people talk about the smaller differences. And I think sometimes people say, oh, how much difference can this really make, etc." But when you get bikes that even have subtle geometry changes or material changes, it can sometimes really, really come to the fore. Alicia, this was your first field test. How did you find the back-to-back testing? Was it Was it as illuminating as we think it is? Yeah, I think it's absolutely helpful. It really helps us kind of dig into the specifics of what each bike does and It's easy when you're looking at a bike and riding it for the first time to say like, oh, this climbs well, but it doesn't mean much unless you're comparing it to all the other bikes and how well does it really climb? Well, better than, you know, better than the stump jumper, worse than the propane or something like that. Like when you can make comparisons, it puts it in context. Exactly. Yeah. And speaking of that, the other important thing here is multiple riders is at least two of us, in some cases, three of us riding the same bike and depending on the bike and the situation, Kaz, sometimes we're talking about how we feel about the bikes, but also sometimes we do keep that, our feelings, our impressions of the bikes closer to our chest before the review, don't we? How does, how does that go? Yeah. And sometimes it's nice to just 
have someone take the bike for a ride, just ask them when they come back, you know, Hey, did you notice this? Instead of saying, go out and see if you notice this, you know, it kind of puts it in their head, but you go, you ask them after the ride, like, Hey, did you notice it bobbing or bottomed out super easy? That type of thing. So we discuss the bikes, but then it's really after we've got all our ride impressions in and our timing and stuff that we really start digging in deeper, just because the first part of the field test is all about just getting the miles in and, and just getting used to them and, and figuring them out. Um, luckily the setup doesn't really take that long. We've all pretty proficient at doing that. I know some commenters tried to say we were setting things up wrong, but we're all pretty dialed. I'd say getting bikes set up within a, you know, a couple shakedown rides, and then we can just get into the testing. Yeah. That's something else we should touch on too. Henry and I, we're both pretty close to similar height and dimensions. We both like somewhat similar settings and Kaz, you and Alicia are pretty similar too. You guys rode the six trail bikes how important is that to be able to ride the same bike with basically the same setup? I mean, it makes it a lot easier. You know, we could do it. We could obviously do it with somebody that was a bunch different, but just the fact that, you know, we, it is nice. It's just going to happen this way that we keep our controls in a fairly similar spot. Even our seat height is pretty close and suspension setting pretty close. So it doesn't take long to tweak it. Cause otherwise, yeah, there would be a lot more. If you had to do drastic changes, that would be, could be a little bit tricky. I think also it can be quite indicative of, you know, if, if the setup isn't very quick and very easy, that tells you something in itself because we kind of all do, I don't know, I'd say we kind of know what we're doing. And so if you get a bike that is really hard to find a sweet spot, even if you eventually get there, that in itself is a is something to, to take away. And then on top of all this work stuff, we also just get to hang out, right? Which isn't terrible. That's no, not bad. Yeah, I mean, for, the, for this field test, it was the first time meeting some people because we'd all been locked away on other sides of the border and stuff. So I hadn't met Alicia in real life. I don't think I'd met Henry either. And I hadn't seen Matt in a long time. So it's kind of neat just to be with everybody and nerd out about bikes for a few weeks. Yeah, it was my first time meeting almost all of you. Yeah, this was this was actually your first field test. Before you got there, what did you think it was going to be like? And what was it like? Yeah, so before I got there, I was a little nervous, not so much about the bike riding part, but about like, I'm going to meet my coworkers and spend 24 hours a day with them every day for the next two and a half weeks. I really hope we get along. And we did, which was great. It turned out awesome. I had a great time. I went on rides with all of you. We even did some UFO watching, but that's... That's another story. For another podcast, maybe. This was our ninth field test, Casimir. Our ninth field test. And they're, they're usually a lot of fun, but I might also have some PTSD from a few moments over the years. I feel like we should do a podcast with like Max and Tom and Jason... From the Pink Bike Audio Video Club, maybe to reminisce and and talk about some of our memories. So I don't know. Let us know if you guys want to hear that. Let us know in the comments, and maybe we can do that. Sorry, just to jump in there, talking about you know getting the audio and video guys in. Mike said to me, Henry, would you um take care of the efficiency test this time round? It's half a day. Half a day, Mike. It's half ass. a day when I do it, dude. <laughs> there were so many Garmin pedals to change and calibrate, and they stopped working, and then. So many different, like 12, but it was just, it took literally all day. It was yeah. horrific. Dude, wet, you guys came back, we thought you were lost. Yeah, we thought that oh, like, was bears <laughs> Speaking of PTSD, like one time for the XC field test, it I think it took me three full days <laughs> on that logging road in like 35 Celsius degree weather, just dying trying to get that efficiency test knocked out. I appreciate you doing it this time around, Henry, but I seriously did think something was wrong when you didn't come back at lunchtime. <laughs> Previous field test at some peaks where we had four enduro bikes and obviously e-bikes, 
you came back within like four hours. Like, that took way less time than normal. I'm like, guys, you only had five bikes and everyone was stoked. They sent me out with 12 bikes and they're like, wow, that took more than four hours. It's like, well, of course it's going to take more than four hours. Henry, you got to work at your efficiency at the efficiency test. I know, right? Efficiency test failed. Yeah. We're going to skip the news for this one because Brian's not here and the field test is part of the news anyway, so whatever. But we still need to do an ad read. This week's podcast is brought to you by Rev Grips. Rev has engineered a suspension grip that reduces trail vibration by positioning the grip off the handlebar through the use of patented suspension inserts. This creates just enough float to isolate the grip from trail feedback. And they've listened to their riders and simplified installation with their new single piece suspension inserts that make setup and tuning super easy. Check them out at revgrips.com to learn how their patented, made-in-the-U.S. suspension grips work. All right, I feel like we stretched this field test out as long as we can. It's time to wrap this gong show up with a whole bunch of good questions. So that's exactly what we're going to do now. Last time, it was Kaz and Alicia asking Henry and I. This time, like I said, the roles are reversed. But first, let's remind ourselves what these six trail bikes were. So Kaz and Alicia were riding the Propane Hugene. That's a 140 millimeter bike with a 150 fork. The new Stump Jumper Alloy Evo. That's a 150 bike with a 160 mil fork. The Ghost Riot Trail Full Party. That's a 140 bike. Starling's Murmur. That's a 140 with a 160 fork. That came with Olin suspension, which is pretty interesting. And then we had the Raw Jib. That's that aluminum bike. It's a 135 with a 150 fork. And then finally, the Score 4060 ST. That's 140, 150. And just to clarify, the murmur that we had actually had a 150 fork. So Oh, shit. I already yeah. made a mistake. That's it okay. was supposed to come with the 160 fork, though, Kaz, wasn't it? No, it's okay. He kind of sent it a little bit more. You know we were doing aggressive trail bikes was the oh. theme, so he kind of sent it a little bit shorter front fork. And the murmur comes in the two options. There's the one with the 140 fork and the one with the 160 fork. So we had the middle ground one oh, of true. the two options. Yeah. True. The most trail bike one. So we'll talk about that murmur in a few minutes. But first... Before coming to the field test, Alicia, what bike were you looking most forward to trying? I was really looking forward to riding the Score, mostly because the other bikes I had a pretty good idea of how they were going to ride, whereas the Score was just brand new, absolutely beautiful, looked like it had a lot of potential, and I wanted to see if it lived up to that potential. Kaz, what about you? Yeah, I'm in the same boat. Definitely the Score. And then that Starline, too. I hadn't ridden one before, but I'd always heard good things, so kind of interesting to mix it up with a steel full suspension bike. So, yeah, those are two at the top of my list. I'm curious, before you guys came to field test, did you guys do a bunch of homework looking into these bikes, looking at the numbers and all that sort of stuff? Or do you prefer just to get on them and ride them without knowing too much stuff? I think I glanced at the geo chart for each bike. I didn't dig way into depth, but I tried not to go in with too many preconceptions. I'm the one that sources the bike. So yeah, I dug in pretty deep to try to figure out which bikes made sense and what size to get and all that. How was sourcing the bikes this time around? I know there was... I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of bikes are hard to come by right now, Kaz. There's not many out there. So did you have like a list of 20 bikes and you just tried to get what you could or how did it go down this time? Yeah, kind of. I think these days it's all about just casting a wider net. You can't just ask for five bikes and get five bikes. You might have to ask for 10 or it just kind of depends. So it was a little tricky, but luckily it's a pretty broad category. You know, there's a lot of options. So we I got, I think the mix that we ended up with is pretty interesting. It's kind of nice to have some bigger mainstream brands and mix it up with some of the smaller brands too. So I was pretty excited about the bikes that ended up being available. Yeah, it's it's way more interesting for us too when we have bikes that are kind of oddball or 
are obviously going to give something or bring something different to the party. Hey, Kaz, were there any bikes that you wanted to get, but that you couldn't get for whatever reason? Or have you ever had a company decline, like say no to sending us a bike? Um, not, not exactly. I've never got like a hard no saying, Hey, we don't want to be part of it, but they'll just used to say, we don't have anything available or the timing doesn't work out. Or, you know, sometimes if you're asking a bike or a company, if they have a bike available and their new ones coming out in three months, they don't want us to be reviewing the, you know, the prior model year basically. So, um, yeah, I don't think anyone has ever said, you know, I don't like pink bikes reviews. We're not going to send a, a bike. I've never had that happen, but it's easier. Just, we don't have anything available or, or they just never respond. So. I feel like Giant or Ghost might be in that category now, but hey. The Ghost too is now on everyone's radar. It wasn't on that many radars before, so could be one of those. Any publicity is good, right? Yeah. I think so. Yeah, we'll talk about that. There were some people that seemed interested. They said if they lived in Iowa or something, like the, the Midwest contingent came out and they said that. that Midwest was, contingent. Yeah. It sounds like a, like a civil Always war a like grouping. Phrase. And the Midwest yeah. contingent coming in on the flank. <laughs> Yeah, they're like mountain bike reenactors. They go out and pretend they're mountain biking, but it's not actually mountain biking. Sorry, Midwest people. I know there's good riding out there, but we're probably not going to do a field test there anytime soon. Actually, another question for you guys, sort of along the same train of thought. We've got these review bikes in here. Do you actively avoid reading other reviews about bikes before you get on something, Kaz and Alicia? How does that work? Yeah, I usually don't read a review of a bike that I'm currently reviewing. You know, maybe after they're... after our review goes up or once it's already written, I'll, I'll check out and see what other people's impressions were. Just kind of nice to see if other people are feeling the same, but no, I don't read, uh, read the reviews beforehand. Just, just, I don't want that in my head. I did read several of them, but it is interesting because for the majority of the bikes, I disagreed what was already, with what was already written about them. So yeah, it was a hard thing where it turned out to kind of cast some doubt and almost invalidate what I was thinking. But then, I mean, I yeah, think I was yeah. right. I think you were right too, but we'll we'll get to that when we get to the ghost for sure. Because there's definitely some positive reviews of that bike that we're we're scratching our heads about. But can I just ask a question to to the mics? Because obviously you guys have been doing this so long. Do you do you care what other people? If you saw a review that came out that was very say glowing on a bike that you're very damning about, or vice versa, do you care that you're like? Does it? How how do you feel about? How have you done that in the past? Have there ever been any instances where you reviewed a bike and thought? This ain't for me. And then you've seen a really glowing review on another website. And you've, how's that been? Yeah, that, that exact scenario has happened before. I think a lot of times you could look um, look at the bigger picture. And sometimes there's some reasons why they may have got a different impression of the bike. And maybe that's like that particular test rider is a different kind of rider. Or the terrain that the bike is being tested on is a very different kind of terrain. And I think as long as in the review, as long as that reviewer has made that obvious, I think that's fine. What about you, Kaz? Has has that come up before? I think it happens every once in a while, but I'm usually pretty confident or fairly really, yeah, I'd say I am confident in my takeaways from a bike these days. I mean, just been doing it long enough. So yeah, I kind of usually stand by what I write. So I don't have, it doesn't bother me as long as that other person's backed up what they said. You know, it's reviews. It is funny, but reviews are opinion, you know, as much as people don't always believe that it is someone can love a bike and someone might not love a bike. So as long as you explain why that's the key and explain, you know, the pros and cons of a bike, I think that's the important part. So yeah. Um, I'd say overall though, I, I, the reviewers that I, or the reviews that I do read tend to like, there's only, I don't read all of the reviews out there. So I think that that kind of makes it, makes it more likely that they'll have a similar takeaway, I guess. All right. 
Let's get bike specific about this. And we're going to start with that gorgeous propane Hugene and why none of us made any Hank Hill jokes. That was a ball dropped for sure. But it sounds like both of you really like this bike. Alicia, what made it, what made the Hugene stand out? I think I just liked it so much because it does everything pretty well. It, it climbs amazingly for what it is. It descends really well to the point where you're not really thinking about whether it'll handle anything you throw at it or, you know, it's just one of those bikes that you don't have to make decisions around where you take it. You just ride it and it does the thing that it's supposed to do. So you guys, you guys talked a lot about how well the bike pedals. What does it lose, Kaz or Alicia, what does it lose by being such an efficient feeling bike? I think it might have a little bit less traction than some of the other bikes on the, if you're in super chunky climbs, it's a, a more firm feeling suspension under power than some of the other ones. But again, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a, a huge con. Some people really like that. They like the bike that feels closer to that. It's really firming up when you're pedaling and other ones want that more supple traction. So, you know, that's how, that's one thing that makes it stand out compared to say uh, the raw jib, which is a pretty, um, you know, active bike, I guess. Would a bike like the raw jib be more capable? Like if it's wet, traction sucks, or it's really steep, you know, whatever. It's some sketchy spot. A bike like the jib, is it going to have more traction or give you more confidence than the propane? I think that depends on where you're riding it and what you mean by capable. But yeah, overall, the raw jib, it's going to have more traction. It's going to hold up just a little bit more. Like it'll hold a line a tiny bit more where you're pointing it just because it does have that extra you know, suspension ability. That's not the term, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Kaz, how would you compare this thing to the Ibis Ripmo? Let's see. I got to go through my mental Rolodex of bikes that I've ridden. It's been a little bit since I rode the Ripmo. It does have a similar, they both pedal very well. I think pedaling wise, you could, there's definitely some similarities is how efficient they feel, just how kind of snappy they are, but then they still do a good job when you are going down of using the travel that's available. So there's definitely some similarities. Um, the last Ripmo I had had a Float X2 on it. So this bike that we had had the Float X. So there's a little bit different in just the suspension feel itself. But uh, yeah, I think that that style of rider would 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 like both bikes. If you like a Ripmo, you'd probably like mm -hmm. the Propane as well. Kaz, I'm going to make you do another comparison here because I've got a, a comment from L40. He says, Mike Kazmer, can you compare it to the other German direct sale canyon spectral that you had the chance to test how do those two compare well, the spectral is a little bit more travel the spectral is a 160 bike um it's also a little bit longer it doesn't quite feel it's almost a different kind of bike isn't it yeah it's like that one the spectral i could almost call an all-mountain bike i mean we're gonna get teased again for doing the different categories but yeah the spectral Spectral is just mostly longer is the longer and more travel is the main difference. It doesn't really, it's not a trail bike where this one is, you know, for me, it fits into that aggressive trail bike category. It's a little bit more easy to maneuver when things get slow. Uh, you've got more rolling terrain. I'd, I'd rather be on the, on the propane than on a spectral. What would you two do to the bike to make this suit you better? Like Kaz, you live in Bellingham. You got plenty of rowdy terrain close by. Would you want a 160 fork on the front? Would you want it a bit slacker or would you... I don't know. What, what would you change about the bike? I don't think I'd change anything because it is like we've been kind of saying, it just hits the mark of what it's supposed to be. You know, I don't, some bikes do try to do everything. They want it to be the, the best descender and the best climber, but there's usually a compromise for this one. It kind of fits into that category where if you want a bike that 
it's not the it's not your bike to go race enduro races on and just to go find the gnarliest trail but it can still get some down some gnarly trails and it's a good climber so yeah there wouldn't be anything i'd immediately change i think as it comes they've done a good job with it yeah i'd agree with that i think for what it is changing it would just change what it's meant to do and you know it's not the only bike you're going to have in your garage ideally you'll have something else you can take to the bike park and something else you're going to shuttle on so it's not the do-it-all bike but it is the everyday bike i think it's probably the most comfortable choice for most people who just go for an after work ride or go out for a quick spin where they want to pedal but also ride a rowdy trail on the way down like ride the majority of the things pretty well you know we talk about the versatility of it it wasn't the least efficient bike you know by any means but it wasn't that high in the efficiency rankings we talk about how there are going to be better bikes on the really chunky techie climbs but also this isn't the it's apparently the strongest on the smooth graded climb either so a commenter made a really good point about that and about how we run the efficiency tests where it does measure how much speed the bike gets from how many watts you put into the bike but it doesn't measure how much effort it takes for you to put those watts into the bike and i think that might be where the propane has the advantage that didn't get measured in the test. Yeah. Where I don't know what your experience was like, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was easier to put out that number of watts on the propane than on some of the other bikes. Yeah, there's this YouTuber called Peak Talk, I believe, and he did a really good video recently debunking sort of um, how full suspension bikes are measured in terms of efficiency. And yeah, the I think he calls it like upstream um, metabolic costs, which I guess what that guy would be referring to. He's probably just tearing into our efficiency testing. <laughs> um, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> right, rightfully so, kind of, you know? Yeah, if the propane failed, I'm on his side. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, for the efficiency test, like those results came in. But for me, I don't think, and for most people, they shouldn't base all of their fine decision on efficiency tests. You know, it's if you're... If what? You're out, what? Yeah, I know, it's weird. But like riding the bike, it feels how it feels. And that's kind of, if you feel, if you think the bike feels efficient, I think almost mentally it makes you think it's doing things better than maybe it really is. Alicia, you've taken that propane back home with you. You've been riding it a bunch since then, I assume. Do your same impressions, do they still hold true from the field test? Or do you have anything else you want to add before we move on? Yep, they hold true. I'm in Missoula, Montana, which is a really climber friendly town. And you know, a lot of the trails take a lot of pedaling to access, so it's been great to ride around here. Just, you know, pedal up, ride down, have fun on pretty much everything. A few shuttle laps here and there. It's just been a nice bike to have. That said, it's snowing now, so. Oh, that sucks. So judging by the comments, you know, one of the bikes that people were most excited to see could well be that Steel Starling Murmur. So it came all the way from Old Blighty. It's very different. It's got the Olins, it's got, you know, it's got the middle burn cranks. How did it stack up for you? And do you think there's ever any discrepancy between, you know, when we have all these bikes that have largely the same component, brake manufacturer, etc., and then you go to something like the Starlink, which is not only a different frame material with a single pivot, but then it goes and has loads of other different brands on that we're maybe not so used to. How do you, how does that stack up for testing with you, Kaz? And do you kind of well, how do how do you approach that? Yeah, I mean, this one does have, I think this and the Ghost were two bikes that were respect with, it doesn't have your typical Rock Shocks and Fox stuff on there. So that does take a little bit longer with setup. You know, you have to, the Owens is a little bit different. Um, and even getting the Magura's brakes to in the right spot for me. But once it's there, and once you're out on the trail, I don't think it is the, is as much of a, as big of a deal. You know, the 
you're still kind of trying to get the suspension to rebound in the same way. You're still trying to find the compression to be similar. So you're aiming at the same goals, even if a different company's name is on the component. So, uh, you know, I think in a review, it's one of those things you can mention if it's harder or easier than the bigger brands, but I, I like being able to mix it up and try different stuff. So Alicia, what did you think of the Magura brakes on that bike? I think they were four piston MT sevens, pretty mm-hmm. powerful brakes. Yeah, I think they were awesome. And just, it was really nice to see something that wasn't SRAM or Shimano that worked just as well. My one super minor complaint is that they were a little bit loud in the wet. And a lot of brakes are loud in the wet when you first start riding, but these ones just took a lot, a little longer to quiet down. I'm not totally sure why that was, but really other than that, they worked really, really well. The levers were pretty nice and, you know, easy to get comfortable with. So as a whole, I'm a fan. Kaz, let's go back to that Olin suspension for a minute. I remember using some Olin stuff from the early days. And I mean, I feel like the fork wasn't overly smooth and the shock was super loud. That was a couple seasons ago now. I've used some Olin stuff since then. And yeah, it impressed me. Does this stuff also work well? Yeah, I think they've sorted out any teething issues they had earlier on. Um, Yeah, that TTX 22 or TX, there's a lot of numbers in there, but that that shock is really really good i like that it fit well with the, the kind of the character of the bike it's you know super supple but it still had enough pop so that bike didn't feel as dead as i was worried that it could be you know coil springs on a steel frame you kind of think it's just gonna be stuck to the ground but it was actually pretty fun to jump yeah and the fork worked well we didn't have any problem getting that set up it does have a little dual chamber so you can adjust the uh the end stroke ramp up on it so uh, yeah overall no issues with the olin's products do you like the brakes too uh, yeah, I don't mind the Magura brakes. The, the lever I don't like, but they do offer a bunch of different options. So if it was my bike, I'd get the, I think it's the Loic Bruni lever that is not quite as hooked at the very end of the lever. Just where I put my fingers on it, it kind of, it's a little bit weird, um, but like they make a flatter lever that would probably work better for me. I think they offer different colors of self-tapping wood screws as well. To uh, that, That's true. Yeah. <laughs> easy, yeah. easy yeah. now. Yeah. And also <laughs> the brake, well. yeah, the brake pads do go quick. I actually have a um, an e-bike that has Magura brakes on it and it goes through pads so fast when it's wet and muddy it just That's eats an them e-bike, though i know but it goes faster than codes and other ones. <laughs> bike what? it's still a, a bike that rides the same track oh, it goes, yeah. no way you could even is compare it, them is it though <laughs> yeah. anyways, anyways but they eat pads because it takes four little pads the tiny pads but but yeah, yeah. the Magura is the feel i do like the feel of Magura. they're they do have their own little quirks and they're a little harder to get not to not rub the rotors but um they feel good. So that Starling, it only has one pivot. So I don't think I'm way out of line here. Just assuming you guys were way slower. You were dabbing way more. The suspension didn't work pretty much. And it basically sucked compared to the bikes with 80 pivots and seven different instant centers. Is that, or am I, am I wrong? Yeah. I mean, obviously if Dave Weagle didn't design it, it can't work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, so the single pivot, what's the story, Kaz? Does this thing work? Yeah, it works great. You of can course. make yeah, you can make single pivots work just as well as your different four bar versions or all the things. It it just depends where you put that pivot. That's, that's big horse link talking. Don't <laughs> yeah. believe it. I know. I mean it, it is funny how people get their magic suspension design and they just kind of stick with it and believe it's the only thing that can ride well. But yeah, single pivot can be made to be really predictable, easy to ride. It it was good. But so to incorporate that single pivot, there was the water bottle on the underside of the top tube. That's true. Did that ever 
have any issues or because I want Orange to do that. I would Orange if you're listening. I just I just want to ride your bikes, but I'm a thirsty Kirsty and I need hydration. It's the <laughs> <Are> old <you? laughs> What's that? Kirsty. What are you? I'm a thirsty Kirsty. Stop okay. being such a moody Trudy. Goodness what? sake, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Was, was that water bottle hard to get to, Kaz? No, it's fine. I think it's a fine solution. It does. I mean, if you if you read Seb Stott's weight article, it's putting the weight where you don't want the weight of your water bottle. But I don't think that too many people are as sensitive to notice if it's on the up there or down lower. So it's a it's a solution. I'm glad that it holds one. You know, it's better than nothing for sure. Did you see that thing that Joe Barnes did where he was putting foam in his water bottle to stop stop the sloshing? Uh huh. I know it sounds silly, <laughs> but it makes. Does it make more sense in that application? Less slosh? Because it's on the exact horizontal plane, right? It's like a battering ram. 750 <laughs> mil battering ram. I, yeah. I'm, maybe it makes a difference. I want to make fun of it, but like, I'm sure it makes a tiny difference, of course. What happens when you drink water, though, and the water level changes? Is that a real question, or am I just misunderstanding what you're saying? You're misunderstanding. You, you, you have to pee back into the bottle. So you drink some, <laughs> and then you pee back into the bottle. So the bottle always stays at a certain weight. So anytime you drink, you have to pee in the bottle. So it's consistent. Or do you train your body to metabolize foam? Mm. <laughs> you start eating moto foam? Yeah. Mm. I just stop drinking. <laughs> yeah. Alicia, I'm interested in your opinion of the Murmur's rear suspension. So mm-hmm. when you got on that bike, what did you think of the rear suspension compared to the bikes with dual links? So it was hard with something like the Starling Murmur where... There are so many different variables that it was hard for me at first to suss out what was the frame, what was the suspension, what was the suspension layout, because it's a steel frame, it's coil sprung, it has a different brand of suspension than most of the bikes I ride. Pretty much everything is different from your average bike. So it's hard to say whether it was doing anything different immediately. Like it was just, it took me some time to feel it out. But I think there are really real reasons why single pivot bikes have stayed around so long. Like they're maybe not as tunable as some of the super fancy layouts out there, but they just work. Like If you do it right, it's simple, it's straightforward, and you just get the setup right and ride it and don't have to think about anything too crazy. We did have a, the one pivot bolt come loose on the bike, though, didn't we? To be, to we be did. But yeah, that's not the it is a new fault. bike. Yeah, that just... Like It's straight from the factory. It Factory is probably a strong word yeah. for where this bike came from, but, you know. Yeah. Kaz, do you think that the steel tubes add anything to this bike's performance? Do they bring anything unique to how the bike feels on the trail? Or, I mean, there's a lot of talk about that, but let's not forget we have 140 millimeter suspension. We have these big wide ass tires between us. So do you think the steel frame counts for anything? I think it does. Uh, It's doing something different. You know, it's hard to isolate exactly what it is, but definitely when cornering or in rough terrain, it does feel softer than some of the other bikes for lack of a better word you know if you look at those rear the seat stays and chain stays they're pretty thin so whatever material they're made of they probably are going to flex a little bit more um so i liked how it was kind of carvy kind of a swoopy feel to it um you know people that want that ultra stiff you know super just precise feel aren't going to find that with this bike but it is kind of nice it's just really comfortable and i think if you're looking for comfort and traction that's what the starling has it's got tons of that where does this bike belong Who's who's the best rider for this bike? Who should consider it and who shouldn't consider it? I think it belongs in England. Like that seems like a prime place. They have so many little muddy ruts to ride up and then ride back down. I think it'd be a fun English. Old bike. Blighty. Yeah, old Blighty. <laughs> um 
but it is definitely as far as trail bike manners go, it's not the best bike for kind of the more rolly, you know, mellower terrain. It's definitely on that more aggressive side of the spectrum. But if you are, you know, climbing up for a decent amount of time and then bombing down something a little bit rowdier, that, that the Starlink's going to be great at that. I think for me, it's a little bit in the category of bikes where there's true separation between the uphill and the downhill, where some bikes just flow easily between going uphill, going downhill, going side to side, whatever, all the directions. And the Starling was more like, okay, we are going uphill. We are pedaling. It's steady. It has a lot of traction. It's not snappy. And then you point it downhill and it picks up speed. Does that make any sense how there are really distinctly different feels and a windy trail that just goes up and down all the time and is rolling just won't make as much sense because it won't ever allow the bike to really come into its own? Yeah, I think I think that makes a lot of sense. Like this, What you're saying, to me anyway, it sounds like... This isn't the kind of bike for rolling terrain or the place where like momentum and speed, where you carry speed up and over small rises and sprint out of corners, that kind of stuff. I don't think it's a surprise that this bike isn't ideally suited for that. But I do have a question for you guys. This is from Curtis. This is from Curtis and Kirk. Whatever. This is from Curtis. Curtis A. Newkirk? Yeah. Curtis. This is from Curtis A. Newkirk. Thanks, Alicia. <laughs> do you think the murmur would have climbed differently with an air shock rather than a coil? So do you think it would be better suited to that kind of riding, Alicia, if it had an air shock on it? Potentially, yeah. And I don't want to give the impression that it sucked at carrying momentum and going over those little rises because there were actually a few times in our test track where the trail did turn slightly uphill and the Starling picks up straight line speed really quickly. It's really stable. And so one of those things is that if you did keep it pointed and just like ride light, it would go up over those rises nicely. But back to the air shock, I think there's a good chance it would ride really well with one. I kind of wish we'd had the chance to try it out because it may have had a bit better. It may, well, it definitely would have had a bit more pop on the descents. However, you may have been giving up some of the best things about the murmur, which is just how compliant it was and just that feel of having really supple suspension was, I think, taken a little bit further by having just that bit of compliance in the frame. Hey, Kaz, since we're talking about how the bikes pedal and feel on rolling terrain, I did notice a couple comments on a bunch of different reviews, actually, where people were like, who cares how the bikes climb? These All these bikes have climb switches, so just flick the switch. Can you explain, before we move on to talk about the Ghost, can you explain why we test the bikes fully open? Yeah, I mean, for one thing, it's kind of annoying if you do need to reach down for the climb switch and remember to undo it before you drop back downhill. So in an ideal world, I think Levy's written 10,000 words about this in the past. <laughs> ideal world, you don't need to use it. The bike climbs well and descends well without relying on that climb switch. So yeah, you can flip a climb switch on these bikes. You know, there's also the fact that climb switch isn't always easy to access. And it's sometimes in a weird place and you're you know reaching over and trying to grab it. So you don't need to use it. Um, I do think it's nice that shocks have climb switches. Obviously, if you got some paved road before you're going to go to the trails or just a really long climb, it's great to have the option. But again, it's it's good to evaluate a bike with it open just to see how it how it works in that state. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those things that one of the areas that you really, you, I think largely when you have a bike that doesn't pedal as well, perhaps you kind of make peace with it and you do just have a kind of calibration ride or two. However, that's not to say that it, Although you get used to it, it's not to say that it, there couldn't be an improvement. And a lot of the time it's the same with people saying, oh, but it's only a degree or two slacker. Like how much difference is that going to make? And it's, although you might not know there's a difference, might not appreciate the difference, it doesn't mean there isn't a real tangible 
gain to having that in the same way that if you were going between bikes, you'd be like, oh my God, this is this is wildly different feeling. Also, a climb switch is just like a free pass in a way. Like if we just judge every bike by how they pedal with the suspension locked up or firmed out, like guess what? That's not very interesting. They all pedal just fine when the freaking suspension is locked out. So I want to know how they work when I'm not flicking that switch. So that's why we don't test the bikes with them locked out. You know, plus on a lot of on a lot of rides, you might even just get those sudden little rises that you have to pedal for, and you're not gonna, in most cases, you're not gonna reach down and switch that climb switch. No. So if you're on a yeah. ride with rolly terrain, you're gonna want to ride it fully open. So that's good to know how it's gonna handle. Yeah, especially as in a lot of places in the world, the riding isn't like that. Like Kaz, I know here for you and I, a lot of our riding is like we climb for an hour and then you descend for 15 or 10 minutes or whatever it is, or you know, like you climb and then you descend. But a lot of places in the world, it's not like that. It's rolling and and people want to know how the bikes climb. So that's why we talk about it with it open. So, all right, let's move on to a bike that wasn't as warmly received by you guys. The Ghost Riot Trail Full Party. And with a name like that, I feel like you better be a good time. But Kaz and Alicia, that definitely wasn't the case with the poor old Ghost. Now, there's probably a couple different things to talk about here separately. Suspension and geometry. Let's start with the former first. It comes with a formula coil shock and a formula air sprung fork. Kaz, how did those work for you? Just, I don't want to know about the kinematics and that axle path that we're going to talk about. The shock and the fork, how do they work? Those worked well. Um, yeah, I haven't spent much time on those. It's been a while. I hadn't ever spent time on the mod shock. It was a little bit noisier than some other coil shocks out there, but it didn't, it was, you know, consistent and uh, we could, didn't take long to find a good tune for both the front uh the four noisy how in terms of the spring on the body or in terms of no damping? just to start the, the oil damping yeah the oil going through the uh the valves you could kind of hear it on the rebound a little bit noisier but again you know if you're bombing down a hill you usually don't notice that um i did mention the review i kind of wish we had a time to tinker a little bit they do make those compression valves and i kind of thought that it, a firmer compression tune might help but it's hard to say but i think that we were able to find a you know a reasonable spot to put some miles in on the bike while we were out there so yeah i think they're uh Mm-hmm. They hold their own against the rock shocks and Fox stuff with a little bit more tunability. So. Alicia, I think this was your first time using that formula Selva fork. What did you, what did you make of it? I know you were getting on and off some Fox and some rock shock stuff and getting right on the Selva. So back to back, what was your impressions? It's kind of one of those things where I'm just happy to see it and happy to see them doing something different where it didn't perform better than rock shocks or Fox. But it also like wasn't noticeably worse. And with the compression damping circuits that are interchangeable, it was just cool to see new features that I hadn't seen before and get to play with something a little different. I I think it's a really cool choice on Ghost's part. Even if I don't like the bike as a whole, I think the choice is smart. It works pretty well. And, you know, I don't have anything really bad to say about it. Speaking of bad things to say, <laughs> let's talk about the rear suspension and talk about how it performed on the trail so ghost if you go to their website there's a lot of words about how their dual link design i I forget exactly what it's called but how their dual link design it provides what they say is a vertical axle path it's not vertical it's basically following the forks axle path to preserve geometry we've seen or heard some things like that in the past but casimir on the trail how did that rear suspension feel? Did that work out on the trail or nah? No, it's pretty weird. The, it has 
I had to, I didn't while we were testing I really didn't dig much into the kinematics of the bike and just kind of went on what it feels like on the trail. So when you're riding, it has it's just pretty bobs up and down. You know, it's got a coil shock, but it bobs more than you'd even expect a bike with a coil shock too. Just kind of had almost a an old school feel where you would kind of used to just how it's moving and every time you pedal. And then digging into the numbers after the fact, and a few people actually emailed me wanting to talk about this. The uh, it has a ton of anti squat, like way more than most bikes do. I think it goes up to I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but what there's a lot. What is a pedal of, pad then? It has too much anti-squat. When you have too much anti-squat, it causes... <laughs> no this, such thing. Oh, there is such thing. <laughs> yeah. It, uh, you know, you're getting up in 150% or levels like that. It's... As, so as you pedal, it extends the shock, basically. So wow. that's what's causing the bob. But isn't that what you want? Or does it happen? No, because it's causing just... it to oscillate. It, 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 you want it to be that kind of neutral where it just preserves the geometry, basically, as you're pedaling. But with this one, mm-hmm. it's causing it to extend and then compress as you pedal. So it gives it that kind of like... Oh, as, as you decelerate, it will then yeah. go back into its sag almost. Because if exactly. it's going to lift, essentially enough to lift you past your sag point, then the yeah. pedal bob actually just is induced at 10 to 30% of the shock stroke, I suppose. Exactly. So it actually just point up and then back down. So I think that's what's happening. And that's why we were feeling Holy it bob so much. I think we actually just... We actually just said something insightful. Can we, Holy crap. Can we bookmark oh, this? <laughs> Timestamp. Someone's asking for timestamps. We're gonna put this in here. <laughs> well, I will say, I will say one thing. Like you guys got on that bike, both of you got on that bike, went for a ride, and came back and said all sorts of critical things about how the suspension performed before you guys knew anything about the kinematics and why it felt weird and all that stuff. So, I mean, that's one of the reasons why we don't dig super deep into these bikes so we can get on them and ride them without an opinion that's been colored by something. And it's always nice when you get off and you're like, oh, shit. You, you look into it and you're like, that's why it, that's why it's weird. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there is a, there's also the flip side sometimes with the longer term bikes, you have more time. So those reviews, we can dig a little bit deeper and, and mess around with more things. So it is worth mentioning the field test is a little bit more condensed testing than what we usually do with the long term ones. So ideally, if we had the full review, I would have dug into this more. But that's why we have these podcasts and you can listen and hear why that that's one of the reasons that goes, I don't think worked very well. It has some weird leverage ratios too. And just as a whole, it, I just don't think the suspension kinematics are correct. Alicia, on the trail, did the suspension feel rough sometimes because of all that anti-squat or was it doing anything terrible? It didn't feel rough, but it was doing things that were terrible. Yes. It just felt all over the place where at baseline when you were just riding, it sat a little deeper in the suspension than most bikes, but it didn't have much support. So... You'd kind of dive mm-hmm. into the shock pretty quickly and then like sort of bounce out of it. And just a lot of the trampoline effect, which similar to when you're climbing, just really oh, kind lovely. of exaggerated when going downhill. Combined with a short front end, it kind of pitched you over the front. It was really not ideal. I, th- I think whereas some bikes look fast standing still, the ghost suffers from looking slow when it's going fast. It, it seems to kind of make fast. a bit of a meal of things. It probably <laughs> feels fast when you're hanging on, maybe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, I kind of go back to the descending, you know, back to those kinematics. It kind of has a, where these days, most companies are trying to make a really progressive curve that almost a diagonal, if you can imagine that, that the ramp up goes in a really smooth, smooth, even, even line, I guess. Uh, but this one kind of gets, it gets progressive and then kind of flattens out and then gets really progressive in the end. And I think, again, it just kind of, it makes it feel a little bit different. Um, and then when you combine that with the geometry, which we also didn't find that to be ideal, I think, it's hard to say exactly if one thing was 
could be fixed, how much better it would be. Just but everything. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Kaz, you touched on geometry there for a little bit. Tell me, tell me about the geometry. Tell me about the sizing first, actually. What what's super fit and what size were you riding and what are your thoughts? Yeah, so we ended up on a size medium. Um, like I said, you know, before we get bikes in, we do look at the geo charts, take a look at what the company recommends, and then kind of make our own decision on what we think will work best. Because they're, you know, sizing at a certain extent does come down to personal preference, but we try to at least be in the correct range. So this one we end up on a medium, um, due in part because the size large had a very tall head tube, had a very long seat tube. And when you combine the reach of 487 millimeters with the 450 millimeter chain stays, it just seemed like it wasn't going to be the right fit for us. Um, so, and also because ghost super fit program tells us that we should be on a medium. So we got it in and that ends up with a 467 reach. So the shortest reach on test by not by much, it's like, I don't know, three to five millimeters less than some of the other bikes. Um, but it also has the steepest head angle, 66 degrees. And then, like I mentioned, it has the longest chain stays, 450 millimeters. So yeah, it's different. Alicia, what does all that mean on the trail? It means a little bit like we were saying with the rear suspension talk. All of that is just exaggerated where the short front end means you're kind of out over the front of the bike and the long chain stays really don't help it feel, you know, centered. It feels as if you're you're being pitched forward with pretty much no support on the front without any benefit of waiting the front wheel. Yeah, I would say riding the bike just was old school feel. Just kind of feels like how bikes used to feel. You know, not exactly, it's not as easy to relax. You're kind of on edge a little bit trying to sort it out. Okay. Well, speaking of that, we should probably talk about maybe where the bike might best suit or some of its strengths. So Alicia... What would be one of the strengths of the Ghost Riot Trail full party? I guess its biggest strength is that you get a fair amount of bike and decent parts for the amount of money you spend. That said, I don't think it's the best buy out there. But if you are looking for a bike, if you are in Europe and you're comfortable with all the downsides of the bike and you think the geometry will work for you, it's fairly good value. It also performs okay in kind of lower speed tech where you don't need a lot of stability and you do need a shorter bike to pick your way through things. Kaz, could you change this bike to make it um, more to your liking? What, you know, Are there any components? What would you do if this was your bike and you wanted to be more comfortable on it? Yeah, it's a little tricky, but you could potentially even put an angle set in there and maybe some high-rise bars, just kind of try to change the feel of it on the trail. Just more for the descending is where I felt like it just didn't give me the composure that i was looking for i mean there's no changing those kinematics but i mean you can still have fun on this bike i think we should say that too like even though it is a weird it does ride a little strange and didn't really compare as well to the other bikes it's not like we went out and we're just sour every single time we spent on it there there were some good rides but it's different for sure and i I think that you know we're trying to make recommendations and this one i just wouldn't really recommend it for most riders yeah to to be fair to the ghost i feel like if this wasn't such a condensed back-to-back testing period our review might not have been quite as critical do you think that's fair kaz uh, possibly i mean we're still talking about a 36 pound trail bike here so we didn't even mention the weight yet yeah, it's got like a lot uh, going against it unfortunately i don't know like yeah people were saying why i think there was something someone was trying to make it seem like we're being too mean to the ghost but i really wanted to like this bike and that's how it ended up in the field test because i saw it on paper and i was like look at that coil suspension it's got 
140 mils. There's not too many coil 140 mil bikes out there. I was like, I want to try that. And yeah. we did. Just for the record, that Ghost is only one pound lighter compared to the Norco range. Oh. <laughs> yeah. You know, I know, I know weight is just one metric, but you think about capabilities. I think I've pedaled both. I'd say actually the Norco could arguably, which isn't a great pedaling bike itself, <laughs> pedal just as well. And it descends unbelievably well. And it's a pound, which is like, what? what's that in? A pound is like, what? Seven grams in kilograms, is it? Seven yeah. grams? Is it more? I don't, I don't know. It's like, it's I think there were 35 grams. ounces in a pound. Yeah. And then there were six yards six, to a... One farling. Six yards to a freedom. Grams. I don't know, man. I don't yeah. get it. Three How many eagles, eagles in a mile? <laughs> hey, there was a there was a pretty funny comment on here. Since since we're talking shit, we might as well keep going a little bit. Uh, Exastronaut says... It may not be a great climber, but sometimes that's the trade-off you have to deal with to get a bike that's also mediocre at descending. That's pretty good. That's true. I bet his <laughs> name is X Astronaut too. Uh, yeah, that's exactly what it is, Kaz. <laughs> There's no spaces. I know it's hard. <laughs> okay, let's move on to the Stumpy Evo. Now this thing has 160 millimeter fork, 150 millimeters of rear wheel travel, and all of that makes it the longest travel bike on test. But you guys also seem to get along with it pretty well. I remember you guys came back from rides and you would say, oh yeah, it works really well. Uh, I don't really have much else to say about it. Kaz, I'm going to put you on the spot. You're going to have to say something else here. Why do you think the Specialized was so easy to get along with? Hmm. I mean, there's partly the fact that I've ridden the carbon version, which has the same exact geometry. So that probably helps. But I think that they, even the geometry that's on it is is relatively moderate. You can make it a little bit more extreme, but it doesn't have a crazy long reach. It doesn't have crazy short or crazy long chain stays. And so the overall fit of the bike is just kind of comfortable and modern without being extreme. So I think that helps make it uh, easier to get along with. And then the fact that the suspension is, you know, I think it's kind of free of any surprises. It just works well. So. What was, if you could just help, you know, explain, what was the benefit of including an alloy version of a bike that we've tested carbon previously? Yeah, I think one reason was because we gave that carbon version, the bike of the year last year, and, and people keep asking for different benchmarks. So I think in this case, the alloy one came out and the timing worked and said, well, let's just kind of toss it in. It does have a little bit more travel than the other bikes on test, just 10 mils. I think it does kind of serve as a benchmark almost in that category. We'll call it more all mountain than aggressive trail if we want to split the differentiation a little bit more, but it was kind of nice just to have that and just see how it, yeah, how it fared against the other bikes. Alicia, Kaz touched on something there. This Specialized weighs 34 pounds. It has 160 millimeter fork, 150 millimeters of rear wheel travel. I'm curious, when you were riding this thing, did it feel like you were riding a trail bike? Because the bike that you liked the most was the Hugene, which it probably feels lighter and feels more efficient. So does the Specialized feel like a trail bike? The Specialized is definitely on the more aggressive side of a trail bike. Kind of like Kaz was saying, you know, maybe all mountain borderline enduro. I think the reason I liked the Eugene so much was just because it feels so snappy and zippy. And it's just pleasant to get on a bike that feels that way. The Stump Jumper Evo didn't have that same feel. But of course, there was the trade-off with the climbing. And it had more descending capability than any other bike we had on test. It was just really good to ride. And it's in the category of most bikes I spend my time on. Like, I ride a lot of 150 bikes. And so for me, that's just 
an easy category to fit into, feel comfortable on, and differentiate kind of between those bikes. I think if I was going to have one bike, it would be in this category where, as I was saying earlier, the Propane Eugene is an amazing bike and I really want it in my garage, but I don't want it to be my only bike because I want something that does have the head angle of the Stumpy and can go to the bike park and can feel really comfortable on gnarly trails without worrying about the bike being a little over its head. And so if I was going to have one bike, I think the Stumpy's a better choice than the Eugene. Yeah, fair enough. So speaking of gnarly trails, we talked a bit about the Stumpy's super wide geometry adjustment range. I think you could bring this head angle down. It's like 63 degrees or something, Kaz? Yep. Um, mm-hmm. So none of these, none of these like silly half degree, five millimeters of bottom bracket height changes. That's that stuff is a waste of time in my mind. So my question, Kaz, is why don't other brands offer a wide adjustment range like Specialized does on this bike? I think it's hard to pull off. I mean, for them, what they've done is they have a an upper headset cup that can be you replace it with a different one that can be flipped around to give you your plus or minus one degree. Um, then there's a little, the lower cup kind of rotates. So it's kind of hard to just explain. It's easy if you see it, but it is a really simple system, but they had to design that whole thing. They had to make sure that it doesn't creak, uh, which it doesn't, I, at least not in my experience, I haven't had any creaking issues. So it is a lot more work than just putting another little, making the hole in your rocker length a little bit longer and making a flip chip. So um, I think that's it. And then you also have to just kind of factor in what it'll do to the bike. So you have to think about how the bike will work in each configuration to make sure that, you know, everything's appropriate. So it's just a lot more time consuming process to make a bike like this. I think have that many options. There's also the non Evo version, which I mean, you could easily argue that having the regular version that's not nearly as adjustable allows specialized to make a version that's can be made crazy slack because if they had one version, I don't think, you know, I don't think that would be ideal. Would it Kaz? Yeah, with the other one, like they've made the stump jumper. I think there's a good differentiation between the stump jumper and the Evo where the stump jumper is, I mean, realistically, that is more like their trail bike. That's their light, lighter yeah. bike, just a little bit more for your, you know, cross country-ish kind of rides where this one is, you know, more travel, yeah. more adjustability. So. Would you prefer a non-Evo or would you go Evo? Actually, better yet, Kaz, better yet, I know you're going to say Evo, so that's a stupid question. Better yet, who should get the non-Evo version? Would somebody like me be okay in a non-Evo or should I get Evo? Yeah, I think the non-Evo is a good, it's, it's a good bike for, I mean, yeah, you'd have a good time on it. And it kind of almost, the person that say you already have your enduro bike, you already have maybe your downhill bike and you want something a little more pedal friendly, something that's for those big long rides. That's where the stump jumper, the regular stump jumper would come in, where the Evo kind of splits that difference. And even though it's kind of a confusing category, I think for a lot of people, it does work really well as that one bike where they want to hit some jumps, some drops, ride some rowdy terrain. It's not really what the stump jumper is for, but the stump jumper Evo could definitely do all that and still be, you know, it's pretty mild, mild bike to pedal around, even if the alley one's a little heavier. Mm-hmm. Okay. Last question for you, Kaz. And then I got a couple for Alicia. This is from Stainer Dome. He says, people actually adjust their geo. Do you think people actually adjust their geometry, Kaz? I mean, probably not. Well, they do. Some people do, but I think the overall majority of people probably put it in the one position that works well and yeah. keep it there because you probably ride the same trails a lot. But having the option, it's pretty nice, especially if it doesn't add much weight, which I'm assuming the geometry adjustments on this bike maybe add like 50 grams or something. I don't know. It can't be that much. So, 
I think sometimes like, you know, these modern trail bikes and enduro bikes with this adjustment, they're a bit like really nice cameras that people just use in auto. It's still going to take a really nice picture, <laughs> you know, but mm-hmm. a lot of people, not maybe not a lot of people, but some people just won't be bothered or interested by going through and like, I still don't, I've got a camera that I'm meant to take pictures with. I still don't know what ISO is. I, I, look, I Googled it and I forget it and I just it's don't care. It's pronounced Izzo, Henry. Izzo? Yeah. I don't, I have no clue. Like, honestly, man, I just go in auto every time. So, yeah. Yeah. And to be fair, I feel like these geometry adjustments on the Evo Stumpy, they're not something that people would. I believe it's pronounced Evo. Yeah. On the Evo Stumpy. They're Get not a grip. something. Sorry. They're not something that people are going to be changing they're not intended to be something that people are going to be changing before you know every other ride this is more like i in my mind it's more like you adjust the bike for your terrain and that's kind of where you would leave it yeah exactly but then if you do have a say i'm going to go ride some shuttle apps or go to the bike park or something where it's going to be different from your normal then you could change it and it doesn't take that long you know 20 minutes at the most to completely switch the geometry around so yeah it's it depends nice how many them. washers you lose and they roll away when you undo the bolts, though. There's no washers. Oh, great. Even better. It's really simple. Like, the head, the headset really is just, it's only one cup that you have to take out and put the different one in. It's so just you just have to, one. just yeah. the top one also. So it's you pretty simple. You don't have simple. to drop your fork. You just pull nope. the stem, flip it around. Yeah. Super easy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Alicia, questions for you. This is from Yundaman. He wants to know how tall you are and how you, how you felt on the S4 size of the Stumpy Evo. He asked because he's 5'8", he put a leg over an S4, and he says it didn't feel that big or stretched out, but he had to drop the seat an inch or two. Uh, He says he's supposed to be on an S3, but the truth is, Yon Demand, there's no supposed to be on anything. That's the whole point with this S sizing. You could pick the size that makes the most sense for you. So, Alicia, S4, how tall are you, and did it fit? Yeah, so I'm 5'10". It fit great. It's pretty much spot on for the sizing I want a bike to be. I did reply to this guy in the comments and say, like, you know, it fits me very well. I also have had the opportunity to ride the bike, and I wouldn't judge a bike only by the size chart. Like, I think, know kind of what ballpark you want, and then hop on it, go for a trail ride if you can, and just make sure you don't feel too stretched out when it actually comes down to real riding. So, Alicia, I mean, I I completely agree with everything you just said. But in this sort of modern landscape of more direct consumer brands, um, the, the complication of COVID, which doesn't help, which means less demo days sometimes in some places, it, it does it does muddy the water. If you were to buy before your testing, if you were to order a bike direct to consumer, would you have gone for this size? And do you think it would have shaken out during the course of testing? Yeah, so the S4 has a 475 mil reach, which is... If I were to buy a bike sight unseen, I would look for as close to 475 as I can. Like maybe go a few millimeters above it, but that's kind of what I've decided is my ideal. I know that's only one number of many, but with modern trail bike geometry in the context of most of the bikes we'll be riding, that's what tends to work for me with pretty, you know, average other numbers. When you ride it with the fork and the headset cuffs in the neutral setting and the bottom bracket in the high setting, it has a 475 mil reach. You can play around with that. It does get a bit shorter if you drop the bottom bracket. And so maybe that would work for you if you're a little shorter. But I think if you can't ride the bike that you want to buy, try enough bikes that you know kind of ballpark what numbers you're looking for and then go from there. We should also mention too, 
the S3 and the S4, they're going to, well, they could give you a very different feeling bike on the trail. Like if he's 5'8", the S3 would make sense and the S4, it would also work definitely on the on the longer size. But I mean, that S4, if he's riding really rowdy stuff, really steep stuff, or if he's got buddies on enduro bikes and he wants to go faster, then I could see the S4 working for him. Um, but if he's an older, maybe more traditional rider who's not interested in getting super rowdy, then he may be better served with the S3. But with the short seat tubes of that S sizing, that's it's super helpful. You can you can pick which one works for you. Alicia, I got another question for you. This is from Rad Bart Taylor. He wants to know if this Evo Stumpy would be good for an enduro race like the Trans Cascadia. Yeah, absolutely. It's a bike I'd be really happy to ride an enduro race. And the Trans Cascadia, for those who don't know, it's a backcountry race. It's four days of racing and it's all kinds of trail. Some are really remote, some are not technical, some are fairly technical, some are steep. So you kind of want a do-it-all bike. There's also a fair amount of climbing and a fair amount of hiking. So you want something that you can pedal and you want something that you can hike with. So I would say yes, absolutely. Just because of this bike's versatility and how easy it is to do almost anything. So do you think just to throw another spanner in the works and just really <laughs> it's like cross cross examination so we're talking about the 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 realm of the riding in which the non evo bike would be better for an enduro race like the trans cascadia or maybe similar of similar ilk enduro or stumpy evo because both are such well-established bikes but they're so close now right i mean there's 10 15 mil travel where they compare the front of the back and you know, they're like to me, and I know it's going to be really upset some people that are really committed to this aggressive trail moniker or all mountain, but I'd kind of class like that, that stump jumper Evo as basically an enjoy bike. Mm-hmm. Same here. Sorry. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, they are pretty close. I think the interesting thing with the Enduro versus the stump jumper Evo is the sizing is different. So the Enduro is a bigger bike by reach by a pretty fair amount if i remember correctly it's closer to maybe 40. about 20 mil i think yeah 15 so, 20 mil yeah exactly so you just have a bigger bike it does feel bigger when you're pedaling it pedals decent for having that much travel but i think i would almost go with this stumpy evo for the trans cascadia because that is a little bit more of a pedally race um it's not quite as rowdy as you know because if, if i was gonna race the ews at whistler obviously i would go with the enduro because you know bombing down ride don't slide or something it's kind of a steep rugged downhill ish track i'd want more travel just as aggressive as possible, but um, the enduro. So it sounds like because you're saying people should buy both classic <laughs> yeah. pink bike. Yeah, buy yeah, all three good. bikes, and the, you need to buy <laughs> yeah, the full range. And, yeah, with a hundred yeah. grand, you'll be able to have everything. But no, I mean, just kind of a Evo for your rest days. Yeah, no, this bike is definitely uh, capable be, to capable to be raced in an enduro race and do just fine. So, um, just kind of they do have different characteristics. Again, to, can't really say one's better than the other, but they have different strengths and weaknesses i'm curious kaz as someone who likes big bikes would you choose a stumpy evo or would you choose an enduro as your only bike in bellingham that's a hard one uh stumpy evo come on right yeah realistically the stumpy evo is more it's kind of nice for the the like slightly mellower rides that i can do out my back door but then for the big days i kind of like the enduro so yeah uh, that'd be be a hard decision but i think i could definitely get along with the stumpy evo as my only bike and be fine for most like 
90% of my riding, I'd be fine. Thank God. You have some common sense yeah. still. Cass. Well, I did bring this bike back with me and I have it in my garage now. So that's oh, got to say something. Yeah. Hey, actually, so that's, that's a good point to make. So this is like an aluminum, not crazy fancy bike. And Kaz, I'm sure you have plenty of carbon fancy things in your garage, but you're still riding this aluminum stumpy Evo, aren't you? Oh yeah. I'm not a carbon snob by any means. I mean, last year, my main bike was that Commonsol Meta TR for, I yeah. it for over a year. Um, yeah, I, I like aluminum. I don't know. It's kind of nice. And if you do crash, you don't have to worry about it. It's just easy. And yeah, the reason I'm keeping this for a little longer, it just has a pretty normal shock size. So I can test in different shocks on it and all that adaptability makes it a good little kind of rolling yeah. test sled. So, um, but yeah, no, I have nothing against aluminum, you know, it's heavier, but it's fine too. So I'm too good for aluminum, but that's okay because the next bike we're going to talk about was also ridden by Kaz and Alicia. It's the jib. The bike that has no carbon, but two extra letters in its name. This thing looks super solid, super simple, straightforward. Alicia, did it live up to its name? Is it Jibby? The Rajib lived up to a lot of things, but maybe not necessarily its name. I would not call it a jib bike. I think for a heavy metal bike, it's fairly nimble. And for a general all-around mountain bike, it's awesome. But it's not the bike that I would take out to go hop around and try to have as my only play bike. So it does a lot of things. It's an amazing trail bike. It certainly lived up to expectations. Just Jib isn't the name that I would choose for it. Right. Kaz, why do you think it, it wasn't as playful as you had maybe hoped because of the name? Was it the weight, the geometry, suspension? What's going on? Yeah, I think, I mean, all of those. But I think the geometry has something to do with it. It has you know, moderately long chain stays it has two 29 inch wheels, which, you know, if I think of a jib bike, I think of maybe smaller wheels, maybe a smaller back wheel, short back end, something that makes you want to just kind of snap around and play where this bike is more of a, just a classic trail bike. This is a, the trail bike that would be your just, it's like a tough, it's like a super trail tough. bike. It weighs like in a 34 tough, pounds. No, but this is like your, I'll take that back. Not trail bike, a mountain bike. Like I said it in the review, but this is the bike that you could have for a long time, low maintenance, relatively normal numbers, and you could just go ride wherever and, and be fine. So that's where that falls into. So Kaz, how would you say this thing fared on the jumps? Could it be said it's not a good booster jib? <laughs> I don't know what a booster jib is. Is that a... I, I don't get it. It's a 2022 <laughs> joke. Booster jab, booster jib. For God's sake, you guys. Oh, jib and jab. Oh, I got it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but see, I don't think... I'll leave it you in can... for you, Henry. Yeah, maybe we'll somebody else will think it's maybe funny. Maybe don't. Yeah. Fuck, I thought it was great. Yeah. I How was there, like, giggling, like, I'm going to say it. I'm going <laughs> to fucking say it, man. I got it. I'll be back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. you can definitely boost the jib. I mean, it's super solid feeling. It jumped. It's not super long either. Uh, You're being very inconjiberate. Incon- fuck, no. Inconjiberate? <laughs> <laughs> inconjiberate's pretty good. I like that one better. It's closer. Yeah. Sweet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm curious, would you guys ever search out an aluminum frame despite having the money for carbon specifically maybe because it could be more reliable in a place with plenty of rocks? Is that is that a factor at all? Yeah, I mean, I'd probably go with aluminum in a lot of cases just to save money. Like $1,000 less than a carbon frame for 1 pound. I mean, yeah, I'm, I would definitely search out aluminum frames when they're available. I think also speaking to, because basically the guy who runs Jib is a chap called Ruben. He just moved to Squamish, but I didn't actually review the bike. So it's just been interesting to just to chat to him about it, et cetera. And it's been really interesting, you know, the way he talks about the brand. And he was saying for them, 
the most important thing is just people people obviously enjoying the bikes but word of mouth that's really really valuable to them and it's interesting because that's actually sort of flies in the face of a lot of because that's people's real experiences i liked the bike i didn't like the bike this is what i thought was good and so i thought was bad and that's completely different to what how a lot of people rely on their bikes getting exposure which is through marketing which often normally puts an emphasis on small incremental changes or small material changes to place a big emphasis on big difference but he was saying actually he doesn't really care he just wants people to ride the bike and he thinks that the bikes are good enough that people will just talk about if they enjoy it and that's how the the word spreads really i do like how it's it's super clean and simple looking like this is not a bunch of flashy graphics you don't see any stupid ads from from raw either like stupid corny ads where the bike is claiming that it's going to change your life and cure your cancer and like do all the things like it's just a mountain bike and it, it seems to work well yeah i mean imagine if i had internal cable routing that's my oh. <laughs> the only thing it's missing <laughs> but it has that little concavity down at the bottom of the down tube i oh, think it's it does, almost doesn't as it? clean as having internal routing without all the downsides of having internal routing oh it's yeah really clean external routing which is nice yeah i mean if there were any downsides to cable routing that would make sense but they're just mm, if there were we should actually we should actually touch on touch on this frame too i mean i mentioned that it's super nice and clean but it is very well thought out there's nice pivot hard hardware everything is sealed with aluminum caps uh the bottom bracket pivot is huge and kaz i think you use a, a bottom bracket tool to to repair it if you need to replace a bearing or anything it's all super straightforward stuff I mean, yeah, it, it seems like a really well thought out, well finished frame. Um, like you said, apart from maybe an unnecessary second A, there isn't much nonsense to do with that bike. But how does it compare to something like the Madonna? Because the silhouette's so similar. The materials are obviously the same. Suspension design's the same. However, it's not actually as radical in terms of its geometry. It's got, I think, what's a 66 or 65.5 degree head angle? Yeah. How, how is that? And would you want something a bit a bit more out there? Yeah, and that was kind of what my, I guess, the conundrum that came up with this bike, because it does feel so much like the Madonna. I spend a lot of time on the Madonna, and I really like that bike. And this one's basically just a little bit steeper Madonna, which is good, but because the suspension feels so similar and because the weight isn't really that much different, it kind of just wonder, well, I could just have a slacker head angle and then just have a mini Madonna, which I know there's people that don't believe that you should have, if you're going to have all the weight and all the stuff, why not have all the suspension? But shorter amounts of travel do make, yeah, they do make things feel different. So in my mind, I kind of want to see what this bike would be like with a slack head angle and and then it just would kind of be not your jib bike, but also maybe your more of your, what do you call it, Alicia, your mini, mini downhill bike? You know, it's just kind of a, yeah something a little different. So I get what they were trying for, but I think going with something even a little bit lighter might have helped make the difference there. But just because this comes in at, it was 34 pounds also, I think it doesn't really feel as different to the Madonna. Before we move on to our last bike, Alicia, if you could change anything about the jib, to make it your own, magically, you have a magic wand. You could just change the weight. You could change the parts, the geo. What would you change about it to make it your bike? I think, so we're running into the conundrum again a little bit, but I'd want to have a slacker head angle just because of how capable it feels. Like for a 135 trail bike, it is far above, you know, the capability the numbers would suggest. Mm -hmm. And I just want the angles to match up with its capability a tiny bit more. But then you are cutting into the Madonna's territory, so... It's a little bit tricky. Maybe I would just make it into the a Madonna that pedals as well as the jib. If I have a magic wand, maybe just yep. combine the two. Yep. So one last very small question. How we name bikes is actually, 
I, I think actually is important because it, it, it does matter to people and it kind of puts an idea in their head. Do you think they misname this bike? I actually don't because enough people talk about it. Even if people want to talk about to disagree, I think it's caused more conversations than it would have if they just called it the raw trail 2.0 or whatever. Yeah. But I do, I mean, if you, but some people might be confused if people really put a lot of weight in that, like if they buy a stump jumper and it doesn't blow, jump over stumps, then, you know. On the downcountry field test, we're giving all these bikes shit for having trail included in their name or TR. We were like, but it's nothing like it. But actually, jib to some people does represent something. I mean, not necessarily yeah. to everyone, but to some people. I think it's different though, because trail is much more standardized than jib. Like jib isn't widely agreed upon to mean any particular thing. And so they're not necessarily taking it out of context and misusing it. Whereas trail, it's fairly widely agreed upon what a trail bike is. And so it is misleading to use trail in the name if it's not a real trail bike. Jib, it's in the context of Raw, the company, and like the Madonna is the other bike there. So in the context of that, it is very jibby. That's that's what I was just going to say. Compared to the Madonna, she's, I bet it's pretty jibby feeling. Plus it's jib with two Bs, so that's different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. We don't it's even know what I that I kind of hoped that it would be, um, I thought they were just going to go down 80s pop stars. I was hoping for the Lionel, maybe the Cindy Lauper. You know, I thought that's what they were just going to call the Prince. I think the Prince. Yeah. <laughs> maybe not Gary Glitter, Michael. Oh, maybe not. <laughs> no, they should do the Prince and they could just do like the emblem that Prince used to have. <gasps> the Prince. Yeah. Imagine the that, the Madonna Prince. and the Prince. Yeah. Fuck. That would be good. I'll have a chat with Ruben. Let's, let's move on to our last bike. Last but certainly not least, the toothpaste bike. It's the Score 4060 ST. You guys like this bike a lot. And it looks like it works well everywhere. But Kaz, you also said, I'm quoting here, I'm always a little skeptical when a company claims a bike was designed to be fun, mainly because I feel like it's an unwritten goal for all mountain bikes. So what about the 4060 ST focuses on fun? And does that come at the expense of something else? Yeah, their their version of fun is putting pretty short chain stays on it. Again, to you know, your favorite word is that nimbility. So they want mm-hmm. to make it a little bit quicker. Um, which I do think it worked in this case, you know, as, as fun as it is to pull apart marketing jargon, this bike is super fun to ride. I mean, it's, it's an easy bike to ride. And if a bike was going to be the jib bike, this one is definitely more playful than the actual jib, uh, pretty long front end, short back end. It loves back wheel. I, you know, it's, it's just kind of a fun bike to do whatever you want on. Alicia, would you, you agree with Kaz's thoughts there? Yeah, I think it's, it's genuinely just unenjoyable bike to be on and then it's worth mentioning too that it is the 4060 so you can change it from a 140 bike to a 160 bike so there's just a lot packed into one trail bike to be to be fair though i mean if people do want to change it from a 140 to a 160 bike i see this from companies that other companies have done this in the past but you literally need to buy another fork like it's not a it's not a realistic thing to be honest for the for most people yeah you need a different shock too so yeah, in in it's them saving money, not them adding more flexibility to the end customer. I would argue. But say you move somewhere else, and suddenly you have access to long, gnarly trails, or you want a one hundred and sixty bike, and previously you were in little rolling hills. I think it would be worth the change. And new suspensions, a lot less costly than a whole new bike. Yeah, I just don't think people take the time, but there is that option. Henry, I th- I think um, after giving, you know, poking fun at the the raw jib for its name, whether it's appropriate or not, I'm sorry. The f- any name that sounds like a barcode can j- 
the 4060 ST. It's like, what? Like, I've already forgotten it, you know? Really? <laughs> Why can't they just call it? Yeah, the 4060 like it. ST. It tells you it's what awful. it is. It tells you what it is. Not really, though. I wouldn't look at that and just know. You have to be like 140. Yeah. It knows what it is when, when you know what it is. Maybe. You know what it is. Yeah. Yeah. If you already know, you know. Call it something nice. Finally, you guys have something it, mean to say about this bike. <laughs> call it the banana rama or something. Something sensible. Hey, the cradle of filth is yeah. mean. Actually, yeah. let's let's talk about that. So underneath the rear link, when the suspension compresses, the link goes up, crap can get underneath it. And then as the suspension extends again, rebounds, stuff can get trapped underneath there. You guys made a big deal about this. Now, was that only because there wasn't much to criticize about the bike's performance or is this actually a big deal i mean it's going to depend where you live but if you do live somewhere muddy i think it's actually a, a definitely a point worth mentioning it's it collects mud in that zone more than any bike that i can remember really so it's it's more than just oh it gets a little muddy it's like oh this is going to be really really hard to clean and kind of a pain so i've been riding this bike in squamish actually that if you guys know this it's um ended up in my garage and it is bloody fantastic right i really really like it However, Squamish mud isn't very claggy. We actually, I think it runs pretty clean off the trail. So you get wet, but you don't get muddy if you see what I mean. Not in the same way as some places. The noise that have had, have had come out of this bike, the cracking sound as debris gets caught in there. I was out riding with some friends and we used had to use three water bottles to, sh- to flush out this debris. Mm. It was, It is a great bike and I love riding it. But even in somewhere that drains as well as Squamish with such a well- place the trail network is squamish i even though i don't own the bike i won't ride it now out of sympathy you know wow. not not even because it's, it's someone else's bike it is such an oversight and you know if it wasn't for that in the dry this bike i think it's really well damped i think the four and a half balance is really good it's so easy to ride and it's so great in so many ways but it is such a problem it's not a little problem it's a huge problem yeah okay So that sort of reminds me of some of the things that we've seen last year of the specialized enduro where rocks were getting caught underneath that lower link and they could do some bad damage to the frame. So I'm just wondering, like, sure, some mud can get in there, but Kaz or Alicia, what happens if a big pointy rock or just like a rock the size of my thumbnail gets in there, link comes down, is it going to break the frame? I think on this design, I think it'd be harder for that to happen than on the Enduro, just the way that that lower link moves. It's just more the, just the debris that's getting in there. I mean, there's probably obviously potential when anything's opening up and closing like that, something could pop in there, but it's not quite, it doesn't open up quite as much as the Enduro, I don't think. It's just more how once the mud gets in, it can't get out. There's just no escaping for it. Yeah, it's not so much a pinch point, more just a hole. So it's not, the risk isn't that something small will get in and get crushed. It's more just that it'll collect. Okay. Okay. So it sounds like both of you guys really like this bike. Is that the only thing you would change about this thing? I would also add chain stays that adjust through the size range because the short chain stays won't work for everyone, especially in the larger sizes. So just if I could ask a question. So I've often, maybe maybe not this last year or two, but I always used to joke to my friends that the lyric was responsible for basically, um, what would be the word? almost like ruining like bike review and bike interpretation because it felt for a while, whatever you put that put that fork on, it just made the bike really well, ride really well. And it's just such a well-damped and, and, and great fork. And I find it's, for me, it's the perfect, like it's the perfect trail fork. But that half bike wasn't meant to come with the Lyric, was it? It was meant to come with the Pike. How much do you think that would have changed its attributes, especially stacking up to something as 
heavy hitting as the stump jumper ever. Yeah, that's a, it's a little tricky. I know because it kind of, I think this bike should come with a lyric because like you said, that lyric is so good. I think that you would, with going to a pike, like what comes on it, you would end up, the bike would be a little bit steeper because axle of the crown is actually different, even when the same travel. And then I don't think you'll have quite the same level of small bump sensitivity from I'm just kind of, it's been a while since I've done a back to back, but I think it would change the feel a little bit, not drastically, but enough that I do think the lyric just fits this bike super well. And it'd be great to see it come with it. But I think for a trail bike, what amazed me with the score is how hard you can hit things. You can, it, can, it really carries the line well, and I don't think it gets pushed around that much. But I think, and it's not, not it's not to, it's not to complain about the pike at all. The pike is, is a great fork, but I think that I find with the pike, it's it's not a torsional flex issue. I just feel compared to the lyric, it's not as burly in terms of loading up the front axis, and I feel like the pike is more has has more flex, like fore and aft. And I wonder how much of that great, like, kind of ability to hold a line that that forty sixty st ridiculous name aside has, is is down to just having a burlier fork. I think you guys are drunk talking about putting lyrics on your trail bikes. That one's These got thirty six trail you bikes. Yeah, uh, the categories aren't real bike. anyway. Uh, I yeah. know, oh, but it's Alicia, crazy. take that back. <laughs> take that. back. Back. Downcountry oh is God. real. <laughs> down, um, down I'm, I'm, right, I'm calling it, guys. See you later. <laughs> I I don't know. Okay, why don't we get in? We'll wrap this up with some some overall questions where we're going to talk about exactly some of that stuff. Kaz and Alicia, those six trail bikes had rear wheel travel ranging from 135 to 150 millimeters. Do either of you think there's a ideal travel number? For these bikes or for, for a trail bike or would you buy one bike over the other because it has more or less travel might be the better question i mean travel is just one in many numbers that matter with a bike but it is a number that matters and if i was going to pick an ideal 140 is around what i think a trail bike should be but i can't speak for everyone it's just what i what i feel is the number that comes on bikes that balance going uphill with going downhill and being about equally capable of both yeah i'm the same boat i think that the you know we keep talking about the name but for this i do want to stress that we were going for the aggressive trail bike side of things we split the trail category a little more so in my mind yeah the aggressive trail bikes are in this 135 to 150 zone the classic trail bike would be a little bit less you know kaz over here doing trail ride with his boxer everybody just keep going that, kaz. no that's not a that's not a trail bike Dual crowns don't belong in anywhere except downhill bikes. That's a different debate. <laughs> but no, yeah, for me, this style of bike, I do like that. Yeah, that 140 zone, 135. It just kind of, that with a 150 fork just does tend to liven the bike up a little bit more compared to your typical bigger enduro bike. If you were to have any of these bikes and put a, I know you're going to laugh, but if you were going to overbike at the extent of putting a Zebra 38 on, oh, what God. would be the best candidate? What bike would, I mean, I think the Starline for sure could, you can put whatever you want on that bike. That's definitely just more of an enduro bike. The, I mean, a Zeb wouldn't be out of place on the 4060. It's just going to gain you some weight. I don't think you're going to really, the benefit's not quite there, but if someone did that, there's nothing wrong with it. Let's move on. I'm curious about your opinions on frame material. Before we come into this field test, I'm sure we all thought like, you know, if we can, if we can do it, we just get carbon. Now, what do you guys think? You've ridden a steel bike, carbon bike, aluminum bike, back to back. Do you care more or less about frame material? I'm just going to go with a hard no on your, if we could do it, we would just ride all carbon. Because I just don't think that's yeah, the case. I don't, I don't think it makes either. any sense to be dogmatic about mm -hmm. frame material. There are really good bikes in mm -hmm. carbon and aluminum and steel. And 
I mean, probably fucking bamboo, but I don't know. Like, it just, (laughs) these are all good bikes. They have their purposes. They have really good things and they have trade-offs. And I just don't see any point in judging a bike entirely by its frame material. I'd rather just look at it as one in a set of so many variables about every single bike. I feel like that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I'm a fan. I mean, I'm a fan of bike prices going down. So I think aluminum is the way to do it. And yeah, I'd personally would have no trouble riding and owning an aluminum bike. Even now with access to lots of bikes, I'd probably end up with an aluminum frame in many cases for this style of bike, just because of that, the cost savings, you know, the weight becomes more of an issue if you're talking about your more XC and downcountry bikes. And that's where I think carbon makes a lot of sense because those bikes also aren't going to be pushed to the same level that these ones are. Let's, let's touch on that before we wrap up this podcast. There were a lot of comments, Kaz, on pretty much every review where some people were surprised by how much these trail bikes weigh and saying that it's not something they'd want to pedal around all day. So what gives with the weights, Kaz? Why are we seeing these weights seemingly go up? Uh, well, one thing to note for these, we put control tires on all the bikes. In this case, we had a double down casing tire in the rear and an XL Plus in the front. And those double down tires aren't super light. This is a, uh, what was a DHR2. So that's going to add maybe a half pound compared to your normal XO plus casing tire so it'd be easy to lose some weight there if you want i mean another reason is the frame material in some of these bikes we did have a steel bike and aluminum bikes and those are going to be heavier than your carbon bikes we're also seeing longer travel dropper posts that's adding weight yeah i mean i think the overall weight's coming from different things but and we don't see as many frame failures these days which i'm assuming has to do sometimes a little bit extra weight gets added in there but um, but yeah i think the, the tires in this case was probably adding some of the weight that people were surprised to see The last thing I would add to that is a lot is expected of trail bikes these days. I mean, everybody wants to ride their trail bike like it's an enduro bike, especially here. And if you're going to do that and have it keep running, you need strong wheels and burly tires and reliable frames and components. So there you go. Now we have 34 pound trail bikes. You also have swap boxes, which do add weight too, in some cases, because you do have to have that latching mechanism and has to be strong enough to accommodate that. So I think as bikes are getting these more accessories and more little handy features that I'm all for, they do gain gain weight. All right. We're going to wrap this up with your favorite bikes. Alicia, what was your favorite bike from the field test? And tell me why in a couple sentences. I love the propane. I know I've kept harping on just how good the bikes feels in almost anything. Not almost anything, but any reasonable trail bike terrain. It just is balanced. It's capable. It's so well thought out. And it just plain works. So I'm going to have to go with that. There you go. Casimir, what do you like? I like all of them, almost most of them. No, I do. I think that I have a soft spot for that raw jib, even though there's some things that I'd like to change on it, but I, I don't know. I like that bike, but I think, I, uh, I don't know. The Stump Jumper Evo is probably my top one just because it I can make that exactly how I want it. And but then it's the not score, carbon. <laughs> I don't need it to be carbon, <laughs> but the score, oh, I know, I know. <laughs> as far as riding goes, the actual riding, everything else aside, the score is my favorite. Just the mud is a deal breaker yeah. for me, the mud collection, because it's obviously wet and muddy here. But the way that rides, that was my favorite bike to just ride, plain and simple, is the score. All right, that is it for episode 98, the big field test trail bike wrap up. That's a lot of bike talk. We answered a lot of questions. I think we asked them some good ones, and I think they had a lot of good answers. As always, like and share the podcast. That helps spread the word, and it gets more people listening to it. You know what we have coming up? Episode 100, everybody. We're on 98 right now. I think episode 100, we're going to do a huge Q&A episode. So to get questions for that, put them down below in the comment section for this one and episode 99. And we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.